0: Good morning, everyone. So, over the course of the past several years, at least three or four times, I have tried to read from cover to cover Barbara Tuckman's sort of magisterial and Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Guns of August. And it describes in very great detail the weeks leading up to the beginning of World War I. But every time I go back, I always get through chapter one, and I'm always just sort of moved by how beautiful it is and the meaning that is present there. In the first chapter of the book, she describes the funeral of Edward Seventh in the year 1910 in London. And she uses this very beautiful, evocative language And I'd like to read a passage from it to sort of set the tone of where I'd like to go today. She writes, quote, So gorgeous was the spectacle on the May morning of 1910 when nine kings rode in the funeral of Edward VII of England that the crowd, waiting in hushed and black-clad awe, could not keep back gasps of admiration, and scarlet, and blue, and green, and purple. Three by three, the sovereigns rode through the palace gates with plumed helmets, gold braid, crimson sashes, and jeweled ardors flashing in the sun. After them came five heirs apparent, forty more imperial or royal highnesses, seven queens, Four Dowager and three Regnant, and a scattering of special ambassadors from uncrowned countries. Together they represented seventy nations in the greatest assemblage of royalty and rank ever gathered in one place of its kind, the last. The muffled tongue of Big Ben told nine by the clock as the cortege left the palace, but on history's clock it was sunset and the sun of the old world was setting in a dying blaze of splendor, never to be seen again." Unquote. Beautiful passage describing this old age. We're talking just about 100 years ago, of the kings and the queens and all their spectacular garments that in four years, the advent of World War I, And the destruction and death on a scale never before seen or never before imagined radically changed Europe and the world. And then, if this was the setting of the sun, what happened during and after World War II put the nail in the coffin of the old world, particularly in Europe. Things would never be the same again. To go back, and read about or look at images and pictures of this funeral. you think it was 500 years ago, but things have changed so much in our century. But right in the middle of that, between let's say 1910 and 1945 in the year 1925, Pope Pius XI issued a letter called, in Latin, Quas Primas. It was a letter that officially set up the solemnity of Christ the King that we celebrate today. Even though we've called Christ the King throughout all of Christianity, many people might be shocked that we've only actually celebrated it officially throughout the church for less than 100 years. And he issued this letter after World War I and before World War II in response to the ascendancy of secularism in the world, and the rise and spread of the threat of communism. And he said that this letter had three specific goals. The first, my, uh, not just the, the, the letter, but actually the feast of Christ the King. The first goal was to encourage and promote nations to respect the freedom and autonomy of the church. The second was for leaders and lawmakers to allow their minds and their governing to be directed by Christ and his teachings. And then third was to encourage the faithful to keep Jesus, the king, at the center of their lives. It was a complete failure. None of this happened in the years afterwards, and specifically it didn't happen today today whether it be in the world or in the church. Society, particularly in Europe, is more secular than ever to the point that they refuse even to admit, the EU, its Christian roots. Here, rights of the believers in the States, in Europe, and across are circumscribed. and They can't really promote worship or their opinion in public, it's got to be uh, put in this private sphere. And then the church. The faith has collapsed across Europe. There probably less than 5% or 2% even who go to Mass every Sunday. And in the U.S., 25% is the average of baptized Catholics who actually attend every Sunday. You've heard the stories of sin and the clergy, confusion and teaching over the course of the past several decades. It was a failure. This establishing of feats is as noble of an idea as it might have been, and I'm glad we're celebrating it, It didn't bring about the changes he'd hoped for. So what do we do today? Catholics who are at Mass, believers who are still here to celebrate the solemnity of Christ, the King of the universe. How do we move forward? I think there are two directions that we can go in. One is one that I see, and I'm sure most of you are aware of, is an attempt to go back, to return to the glory of the church before Vatican II, before the corruption of society, before the summer of love, before the entrance of modernism to go back to the old mass, and only the old mass, to go back to a papacy that was more defensive than going outwards, a one that was much stricter. The tendency to return to this is strong, and it's understandable. It's understandable. Because, particularly amongst the youth who've grown up amidst so much chaos and disorder and strife in their families and in culture, it is a desire to return and have orders and order in their lives. And to a degree, there's nothing wrong with that. Beautiful liturgy, clear teachings of the church and the practice of the faith. The problem is it can become anachronistic. It can become reactionary and even sectarian if we are not careful. But I've said it before and I'll say it Again this idea that somehow the church back then, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, or 50s, was strong and robust, if that's the case, then why did it completely collapse after Vatican II? Why did churches just empty out? If it was that strong, the faith was that real, it would have been able to withstand the earthquake that struck culture and the church. For me, that's one way I don't think it's the way that we really need to go. While we respect tradition, we want to take what is good and bring it in because it helps form our identity, we can't go back to the way it was there, and we really are not going to go back to the way it was in society. Probably not going to be a bunch of kings and queens that start reigning. Monarchies are probably not going to become popular anytime in the near future. So what do we do, though, in the church and in culture? Well, the teaching, specifically after Vatican II and the popes that have followed, is that we as Christians, following Christ the King, need to go out, to go out into the world, into society, into culture, and to evangelize, to be the leaven, to bring the good news of Jesus to a world that has lost sense of God and what is right and wrong. But if you try doing that, you realize how difficult it is. Jesus never promised success, and in fact, he seemed at least on face value to be a failure in dying on the cross. So quite often, our efforts will seem to be fruitless. And so we can despair and want to give up. What do we do, though? How do we move forward? What I think is... There's a secret there, something that I firmly believe. And it comes from this little book that I've talked about before by the Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, great friend of John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger. And the book Raising the Bastions written in 1952. It's a programmatic book, but it was prophetic. Because he saw the problems in the church before the 60s. And the way that it become closed in on itself, very, very defensive, putting the walls up. And he said that we need, to, we need to raise the bastions, R-A-Z, tear down the walls and go out and evangelize, to go out into the culture, to bring the good news. He was one of the ones that predicted the hour of the laity, that things had to change. And within just 10 to 15 years, There was that radical change that he predicted. Of course, it didn't necessarily go the way that we had hoped after Vatican II. But he also gives something else in there that I think is so important. That if we are going to go out and we are going to evangelize, what are going to be the tools or the gifts that we use? And so keeping in the theme of kingship and rulers, we, like King Henry V said, must go once more under the breach, into the battlefield, into the culture. But what are the tools, what are the weapons that we are going to use? We could use truth to be able to teach about the faith and the the goal of apologetics but the fact of the matter is, it really doesn't work. People don't use a reason anymore. The church uses the natural law theory in order to try to teach people who are unbelievers about what's right and wrong. People does not make sense to people anymore, no matter how you explain it. I'm not saying we shouldn't give that up, using our reason, but it seems to be ineffective. Colonel Ratzinger says, the way to move forward is through beauty. Beauty of art, and the beauty of the Mass and the liturgy, and this is good and important. This is why we do what we do in trying to offer fitting worship to God, the great tradition of Christian art. But the truth is, as nice as it sounds, if I played a beautiful Mozart Mass for most Christians and Catholics, they get bored in three minutes. You wouldn't care. It's not really efficacious anymore. If it was, high masses would be filled all of the time. People would be flooding to classical music concerts, but they simply aren't, simply aren't. So the third way is the way that I think Balthazar gives is the genuine solution. Not truth, not beauty as good as they are, but what we would call the other or another transcendental. And he says this, one can talk all they want, they can show beautiful things all they want, they can fight and realize that people are going to fight against them, fight against the church, fight against what we stand for. But he says, one can fight against holiness, one can forbid it in a certain external activity, but one cannot refute it. You can refute truth, you can refute beauty, but you can't refute holiness. It is simply the greater power, and always a power of intellectual conviction and demonstration too. Quite clearly, holiness is the best proof that the church still has something. Indeed, everything to say to the present and the coming time, despite her age and her wisdom of old age. The way that we are going to be able to go out and teach and evangelize, to go out into the breach, is primarily through goodness, through our own holiness, our striving to love God and to love our neighbors. That people are going to be converted by seeing our example. If not converted, at least they'll think when they're loved, when they're smiled at, when they're served, it's going to be our holiness that does that. But it has to be anchored in our prayer and our contemplation and our worship on Sunday. Our actions are going to flow from that because that's where our true holiness and sac- uh, life comes from is from that life of prayer and the sacraments. But in conclusion. Keeping this all in mind, our source of holiness is Jesus Christ, who is our King. And if all of this teaches us anything, that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, but of the next. We have all of the pomp and circumstance we want. That's for earthly kings. Christ as the King, his kingdom is often revealed in humility and weakness and smallness in a way that it's usually not seen. And that's demonstrated in the fact that Jesus is a king who goes with us into the breach, who's there with us in the middle of the seeming chaos, and he does so in the Eucharist, small, hidden, silent and unseen. But in that Eucharist, in the mass and our adoration is the true source of our strength, the true source of our holiness. To follow him, Jesus Christ, who is the true king, establishing our cooperation, his kingdom in the world. Amen.